Hi, I'm Isa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White, Ayo Adebri, and Eben Moss Backrack. Season two follows as the crew work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com slash FYC. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It is Tuesday, February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day. If you're a fan of Succession, you'll be interested in the Redstone family and a saga that's one of the crazier corporate dramas in the history of the media industry. For those who don't know, Sumner Redstone was one of the most powerful people in entertainment until he died at age 97 in 2020. Sumner controlled CBS and Viacom, which are now combined into a company called Paramount Global, run by his daughter, Sherry Redstone, and they encompass Paramount Movie Studio, dozens of TV networks, the Paramount Plus streaming service, books, and more. Sumner was an influential guy, and by most accounts, a total asshole. I only met him once or twice at events, but he was famously ruthless, mean, he made racist comments, would throw his food at waiters if he didn't like it, and was obsessed with sex and power, even into his 90s, harassing many, many women. And he had a terrible relationship with his daughter, Sherry, saying she was unfit to take over the company. He once called her the C-word in a public document. It goes on and on. So in the 2010s, as Sumner's physical and mental capacities declined and he was more and more confined to his mansion in Beverly Park above the hills, Sumner and his holding company, National Amusements, were at the center of two sex and money scandals. The first centered around his two young girlfriends, Manuela Herzer and Sidney Holland, who lived in the mansion with him and lorded over his life. Together they schemed, isolated him, even against his own family, and extracted eventually about $150 million of his money over several years, all while one of them was engaged to another guy. In fact, Holland and Herzer were well on their way to inheriting the whole company until Sumner found out about Holland's ongoing affair with an ex-con and wannabe actor, which caused Sumner to boot her out of the house. And that was only the beginning. Next came the Me Too scandal involving Les Moonves, the head of CBS and probably the most powerful person in the television business. His career imploded over revelations of alleged sexual abuse, which I should say he has denied. Uh, right as he was battling Sherry Redstone over a proposed merger of CBS and Viacom, which he opposed. These were big stories in the mid-2010s. I covered it all pretty closely when I was a Hollywood reporter. Sadly, I even once saw naked photos of Sumner Redstone, which I will never unsee. So I was surprised how much new information about the saga is in a new book called Unscripted, The Epic Battle for a Media Empire and the Redstone Family Legacy by James B. Stewart and Rachel Abrams of the New York Times. It's out today. I reviewed it for the Washington Post this past week, and it's a pretty wild mix of solid business reporting and crazy soap opera complete with the mistresses and the love nest and the stolen laptop and the shady private investigators. They detail how Sherry took on Moonves, 
took on Viacom CEO Philippe Dumont, took on the girlfriends and all the cronies and all the CBS and Viacom hangers-on. And they even reveal the late-night drunk text messages from Moonves to his team and the inside machinations that led to Sherry coming out on top. It also shows how this Redstone empire fell so far behind Netflix and the other digital-focused entertainment companies while dealing with these various scandals, all of which resonates today. So today we're going deep on the Redstone family and the new book, Unscripted. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellamy, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with James Stewart and Rachel Abrams, who are the authors of a very interesting and I think kind of incendiary new book called Unscripted, The Epic Battle for a Media Empire and the Redstone Family Legacy. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Matt. So I am, I believe, the target audience for this book. Uh, I am fascinated by the media industry. I covered the Sumner Redstone saga with the girlfriends uh, over many years, culminating in uh, a pretty dramatic courtroom showdown over the future of this company. And I, I feel like this book plays like half business saga and half telenovela in the no, in the number of twists and turns and you know scheming mistresses and stolen laptops and uh private investigators and all of the trappings of a soapy drama mixed with this boardroom tension um the first question i have for you guys is how close did Sumner Redstone and Sherry Redstone come to losing their company to these two girlfriends yeah, that to me was one of the big surprises here. They did come very close. Um, Sidney Holland, Manuela Hertzer, the companions who lived with him. I mean, Sumner had always sworn that he would never sell his CBS stock. Now, some of it was held in trust, but some was in his own individual account. And yet not only did he sell it, in one day, he sent a wire transfer of $90 million to Sidney <laughs> and Manuela. They walked away. And they still have, as best we can tell, over $150 million that they got out of him. Now, the way they were going to take over the whole company, they were working with a very sophisticated new New York lawyer. This is a new revelation. And the, the shares were controlled by this trust, ultimately. But all it took, what would have taken was for Sumner to put them on the trust, which he was showing every sign of doing when, again, the telenovela, telenovela part, as you call it, the relationship with Sidney Holland blew up and he kicked first her and then Manuel out of the house. So that brought that to an end. But if that hadn't happened, if and under the bizarre circumstances in which that all blew up, I, I believe, and I know that Sherry Redstone and his daughter believe that the women were well on their way to gaining control of what was then CBS and Viacom today, Paramount. The companies were doing okay then, so no one really looked at what was going on in the mansion, but he was clearly declining. These were decisions that the Sumner Redstone of his prime days probably would not have been making, yet there became this big debate over his mental competency. And it's almost, it's become somewhat comical because certain people that once argued he was not mentally competent, then changed their tune and argued that he was when it suited their own personal interests. Looking at the 
body of evidence here and everything that you read in the court files and, and in talking to people, do you believe that Sumner Redstone knew what he was doing at the time that he was doing it in these years? There's certainly a lot of evidence that his mental capacity was not strong at various points when he was making multi-million dollar decisions with billion dollar consequences. And, you know, we have uncovered some previously unknown details about the evaluations that were done on him that are detailed in the book about, you know, how well he was able to basically discern basic things. Um, And so uh, it certainly, I think it called into question a lot of the consequential decisions he was making at this time, while also getting paid enormous sums of money by his companies and retaining, uh, you know, a top position there. So at some point, what do you think the, what do you think the reason, the impetus for Sherry getting involved here? What was the one thing, if you can point to the one thing that got her to say, okay, enough is enough. I'm coming in, I'm bringing my own lawyer and we are going to clean house with these girlfriends. What do you think it was? Well, there's a very clear point where, the, the, the nurses, the staff, um, one of them in particular, it's detailed in the book, but they were so troubled by what was going on with the women and, and Sumner in the mansion. They not only filed a complaint with uh, Los Angeles Protective Services, but they began to secretly back channel to Sherry to tell her what was going on. And it was so painful for her that she she couldn't even read the email. She she said, would you please you know communicate with my son? Tyler. And he then took that up. But they were getting this information. And it really was a crisis. It started really as a family imperative, but it also immediately spilled over into the corporate realm. Sherry was a very reluctant um, participant, which you would understand, given the way Sumner had treated her in the business world and in her. Very poorly. He had he had said mean things about her. He had failed to empower her. They were off and on estranged. But yes. I think very much to her credit, she stepped up. Go ahead, Rachel. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, no. I was just going to repeat one of my favorite details from the book, which is that people at CBS would joke that the Redstones would give each other subpoenas for Christmas. You know, the tension and fractures within the Redstone family were very well known. And it's part of one of the reasons why this story is I think going to be really relatable to people and especially anybody that liked succession, because at the core, this is a this might be a business book, but it's a family story. You know, you don't just have Sherry Redstone being a reluctant executive who's forced to step in and try to help her father. She's also a daughter who's had this really fractured relationship with a man who wouldn't even be happy if she beat him at tennis. You know, like like this was a very complicated relationship where she might have been seeking his approval at various points and he was very withholding. And um, and so it wasn't just as simple as, you know, a loving daughter stepping in to help her father in the family business. This is a lo- this is a daughter who's had a really contentious relationship with a man who has not always been good to her publicly or privately. And that's one of the reasons why the story is so I think so captivating to at least you know to me and Jim and we hope readers too. Well, one of the revelations that I didn't know was that at one point Sherry was being bought out. They were drawing up papers to buy her out of the company for a billion dollars. Yes, and and as you probably read, the idea that that her father would be buried near Manuela and Sydney. Oh, um, they were they were trying to get the plots next to him. I mean, unbelievable. <laughs> what, what wouldn't they have stopped at? I mean, but the idea they were trying to, to worm their way into the Redstone family burial plot, that that was another thing that was too much for Sherry and her children. I mean, they, they just, that, that had to be stopped. All right. So 
Sherry deals with the girlfriends, and then that would be enough for one book. (laughs) Then the other side of the company, CBS, starts to have its own problems when the Me Too movement arrives, and all of a sudden, the past transgressions of the celebrated CEO, Les Moonves, start to come under the microscope. And the, the, the last third or so of this book is this frantic, back-and-forth, desperate attempt by Les Moonves to keep his past behavior out of the press while simultaneously battling with Sherry and her allies about the proposal to merge CBS and Viacom. And it really is an extraordinary story here. This is the guy, Les Moonves was among the most powerful people in Hollywood history. I mean, he commanded over CBS and over the television industry like almost nobody else in the history of the business. And this is a guy who ran CBS almost like a mafia where people were very loyal to him and he had his guys and they could deal with problems. But this was a problem that he could not deal with. And he went to some of these extraordinary lengths to try to keep this secret. Um, tell us about a little bit about some of the things you you uncovered in this book. Well, as you said, the lengths that Les Moonves went to cover up what he was doing to keep at least one accuser silent was what ultimately did him in. You know, I think, I think there were these two massive stories in the New Yorker with, I think, a total of 12 women uh, who were making public accusations of sexual misconduct against Moonves, and then he leaves CBS. And I think a lot of people at the time thought that he was just the latest man in a high-ranking position to be felled by accusations and leave a company. But as Jim and I discovered throughout our reporting process and through this treasure trove of text messages and emails and documents- that, Yeah, I'm going to ask about those. <laughs> yeah, that we were able to get. Um, what was what we discovered was that it was actually uh, Les Moonves' dealings with a manager named Marv Dower- uh, that ultimately did him in because basically Marv had a client and and he, Marv remembers year, that years ago, this client had a, had a meeting that didn't go well with Moonves. And he basically decides to tell Moonves that they need to keep this woman happy. You know, this is the height of the Me Too movement. There are rumors swir- swirling that Moonves is going to be next. And, and Marv op- opportunistically, you know, calls up Moonves, who might have normally never returned his phone call. Not normally, would never be caught never. dead <laughs> talking to a guy like this. This is not someone who... People in Hollywood know Moonves is very careful to curate his entire world and the people that he interacted with. This is, I mean, it's so desperate and cringy the lengths to which he went to keep this guy happy, like exchanging gifts and going to his sad birthday party and all of these things, text messages, just, oh, amazing. It's a classic example of the cover-up being worse than the crime. And, and- <laughs> I mean, obviously, a lot of things factored into the board's decision. But again, it's completely, completely shocking to me. The sexual transgressions, the board was pretty much ready to sweep that under the rug. Saying, oh, that was all in the past before he came to see us. Arnold Copelson, the board member, said we all did that. <laughs> I know. I said, excuse me. I don't think we all did. Um, but <laughs> he and his cronies, you know, people like Robert Evans. I mean, that was the world they inhabited. And again, you know. Matt, you know, this all was happening not that long ago. I mean, I know it's extraordinary. And it, the, the, it was this world where that was just so like accepted and, you know, kind of went with the territory. If you were a big studio executive, I mean, that the kind of assumptions, you know, were, were astonishing to me. But 
No, the 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 thing that that struck me the most was his PR guy when confronted with this allegation that he had masturbated in front of his diabetes doctor. The PR guy's response is, "No, Les is a blowjob guy. He's not a <laughs> masturbation guy." Yeah. Like, really? That's the <laughs> oh, that's excuse. That's a great line. Yeah, that's a great line. I know it was astonishing. Um, and so Les, I mean, this is all weighing on him as this movement to merge the companies is coming to a head. And Sherry kind of recognizes that in order to compete with Netflix and all the other streamers out there, that they should probably be back as one company. And Moonves is opposed to this. He knows it would probably dilute his power. And he doesn't think it's best for his shareholders. So he's kind of agonizing. And you guys got all his text messages right before Moonves sued to block the merger. He sent a text message saying, quote, I'm on my third vodka and second egg roll. It's go time. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, you know, one of the big mysteries to me was why on earth would Moonves and his board have sued the Redstones when Moonves knew that lurking in his, in his past were all these secrets that could come out and ruin the whole thing. That was and my I next question. What's the answer to that? Yeah, but you see now what happens. And in the interaction of these, he he says he doesn't want to do it. He He's trying to back out of it. You know, he obviously realizes, and, he, and the text messages are clear, but he can't tell the board that he has sexual assault problems after he's already denied that they have nothing to worry about. So they're pushing him to do it. He's trying to worm out of it. He's drinking more. And, you know, he, he obviously has more because pretty soon his messages are boarding on incoherent no you print his incoherent text messages yeah we printed it and and by the way nobody has disputed the accuracy of those and the you know the reality was that he 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 couldn't save face he would have had to admit it or he would have had some reason for backing out and i think he his pride his powers of denial he he ultimately he caved in to what the board he persuaded the board to do only too successfully but he says at one point in one of the messages, you know, that it's horrible. No matter if he does do it, it's horrible. And if he doesn't do it, it's horrible. He has, has no good option there. And, you know, again, writing that and reading it, it's like you're there in his head. And it's it's painful. I oh, mean, it's, it's it cringeworthy. I don't want to say you feel sorry for the guy because obviously he was held accountable for past behavior here. Uh, but it is it's kind of heartbreaking to see it. Now, this book purports to solve one of the great mysteries of the Me Too era that I have always wondered, which is that Sherry Redstone, having been sued by Les Moonves and having him try out there trying to block this merger, everyone in Hollywood just sort of assumed that she helped Ronan Farrow, gave him what he needed to bury Les Moonves in the New Yorker articles. And that was a back-channel type situation. Uh, you guys purport to say that that was not the case, that Sherry was not involved in the reporting of Ronan's exposés in The New Yorker. Um, that's a surprise to me. Let me just say that that question of wh whether she helped push those stories out was something that I was very interested in early on. And, and I, that really propelled a lot of our a lot of my reporting, at least. Uh, you know, I was asking everybody, you know, did you ever hear about Sherry's fingerprints? I tracked down a bunch of the women that had spoken to Ronan Farrow to ask, how did you first get in touch with him? Um, you know, I'd heard whispers here and there about about, you know, rumors about how she had supposedly helped that never panned out, no matter how many people I asked. And um, and so ultimately, I guess what I have to say to you is, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to 
find evidence for that because that would have been frankly a great story that you know that was that was the rumor and if that was true that would have been you know an amazing thing to include in the book and i found not a shred of evidence that that was true so um so so ultimately i think you know i think what we explain in the book is really how it happened. You know, the Me Too movement was bursting onto the scene. There were a lot of people who were speculating that Moonves was going to be next. And there were a lot of women who wanted to tell their stories. Yeah, can I just add that it's also demeaning to to Ronan Farrow and and his very competent fact checker, Sean Lavery, who worked with him, um, to say, oh, Sherry just planted it all. They did very intrepid reporting and deserve every bit of credit they've gotten for that. But the other thing that really is definitive is it wasn't the New Yorker stories that pushed him out. It was the, you know, it was Bobby Phillips and Mark Dower. It was the um, the, the woman who filed the police complaint who was in the New Yorker, to the New Yorker's credit. And then it was the doctor, you know, the another unbelievable story, the diabetes doctor who he assaulted in an, on an early morning visit. And, and those didn't come from the New Yorker. So there's no way that Sherry could have been uh, behind all of that. And you... And, you know, the rumors about her were, were really unfair and pervasive. And by the way, there were many other rumors planted about her, you know, that she had secretly met with a Chinese buyer to sabotage oh, right. the Paramount deal. And I cannot tell you how much time I spent on all this. As Rachel said, these were these would have been good stories if they were true, but none of them panned out. And I, you know, I researched that intensively. I spent a lot of time on it. I know exactly what happened. She was not involved. She was not sabotaging it. And I, I had to wonder... If she was not a woman, would would these rumors have caught fire the way they did? And the assumption, everybody, you know, was only too willing to believe this to be true is very unfair to her. Well, that is a theme that keeps coming up in the book is how everyone from her father, who didn't ever seem to see her as an heir in terms of, of being able to run the companies, to the way the board treated her, which it's pretty clear they would not have treated her the way they did if she were a man. Uh, it seems like there is an undercutting of sexism running throughout this company, um, and it's something that she really had to overcome. Yeah. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! The broader question here is all of this was going on at a, a very important time in the media business. This company was under attack from Netflix from Amazon, from all of the tech companies that were essentially breaking up the oligopoly of television that had existed for 20, 30 years. And nobody felt it sooner or more bluntly than Viacom, which had all these young skewing TV brands like MTV Comedy Central. They were the first to really decline as young people abandoned television for digital. I got to say, especially where the company is today, it's been merged. It's Paramount Global. They are trying their best to compete in this environment. But I got to believe that this whole sideshow and this drama and circus with Sumner and his family and all the girlfriends and everything really set this company back and probably set it up for an uncertain future where it may not be able to compete in the long run. Do you agree with that? Well, yeah, there's no question that at the very least, it set them back about two years. And and you you rightly describe as a critical turning point in the history of the entertainment business. 
And I believe now, certainly on Wall Street, the the almost universal assumption is that they're not big enough now to engage in the streaming epic streaming wars that are going on with you know Disney, Netflix, Amazon spending billions and billions of year on content. Now they have had some you know some big big recent successes with uh, you know Top Gun, Yellowstone, but they don't they don't have the scale. And even Yellowstone, that whole decision to sell off streaming rights to NBC Universal, that decision was made before the companies were merged. And arguably, if they had had, if Sherry had gotten her way earlier, they would have been one company and would have been less inclined to sell off what became their biggest property to a rival. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, you know, <laughs> I think Sherry was absolutely right. They should have merged long before they did. And uh, I think Moonves was wrong to, you know, I mean, he was doing it probably for, as you point out, to maintain his own power and prerogatives, but uh, they should have been merged long ago. And, you know, I, I don't think Sherry is opposed to selling, you know, at the right price and, you know, to the right company. I think that uh, it would not shock me if, if somewhere down the road, um, you know, that, that Paramount Global is acquired by a larger company. What's Moonves up to today in your reporting? What's, I know he has that office on Sunset Boulevard. Um, people say they see him at the Bel Air Hotel having lunch sometimes. Um, but I thought maybe he'd be investing or, he'd ha you know, he's got so many relationships with these very powerful people. Maybe they would kiss him in on some investments. He's still got a youngish kid. So I think that's why he, they're still in L.A. They, you know, still are kind of doing the, the parent circuit stuff. But uh, I just wonder, do you, think, do you think he'll ever be back or is, this, is he done? I think it's too soon with a lot of these guys that lost their positions during the past few years since Weinstein. It's too soon to say what's going to happen to them. But, you know, Hollywood loves a redemption story. And you, I have to wonder that with enough time and enough distance, are people going to think, well, you know, I think I could offer Moonves a job or a this or a that without getting canceled myself, you know? And, and, and so I, I wouldn't count him out yet. And I would never say never. He's made a lot of people a lot of money over the exactly. years. Exactly. And that exactly. matters. I mean, I have friends in in the business who have said, you know, like, I don't really know what happened with Les, but, you know, he was very good to me. And I don't ever want to get on his Women. Show. Women say that. I've heard that from but women. They do. And, you know, one of the things um, that Rachel and I discovered in the reporting here is that, you know, the, the Me Too movement has definitely had an impact, but women are still afraid to to talk about what happened. They They... Some of the, the women we interviewed would, in the end, would, would still not go on the record. They still felt that their careers were going to be ruined in the business if they were really, if they came out on the record and said what really happened to them. So some things have not changed all that much. Again, I wouldn't count uh, Mundes out. He's, you know, he's not Harvey Weinstein. Um, he's, he has not been charged with any crimes. He hasn't been sued civilly. Um, you know, Harvey is such a, and he was so popular and successful. Um, I, I would, you know, again, like like Rachel said, I'd never say never. So Disney War, very different book, but similar similar themes of, you know, boardroom drama and such. Um, what's the biggest parallel and what's the biggest difference between this and Disney War, which I think is one of the seminal business books out there? Well, thank you. Certainly, I'm sorry to say that since Disney War was uh, published, corporate governance has not gotten any better. Yeah. Oh, the investigations into oh this God. stuff at the law firm and everything that you describe in the book. I mean, it is laughable how just rote and non-interested these investigators were. Yeah, lawyers in this story have a lot to answer for. Um, 
And the, the investigations were a farce. Um, and the, the willingness of the board to tolerate the, you know, incredible misbehavior of the CEO is, you know, shocking. Clearly, they were beholden to the CEO. There's a line where one director, like, texts uh, Moonves and says, oh, that's what friends are for. And I think, wait a minute, you are the, you know, the lead independent director. You're supposed to be representing the shareholders, you know, mm-hmm. you never hear about the shareholders, including the fact the biggest shareholder, the Redstones. Uh, so that that has not changed. Um, they're they're different in the sense that um, in Disney War you had Michael Eisner, the then CEO and chairman, who had you know, as he would groom a successor, he would then undermine him and make sure that there was nobody who'd keep going but himself. This was somebody who wanted to stay. It was the revolt of the Disney family that forced him out. Here you have the patriarch, the founder, Sumner Redstone, in declining physical state, in a declining mental state, getting way up in years. There's no question that the the baton had to be handed over. And you see this sort of feeding frenzy of, of, (laughs) you know, a cast of characters I could never dream up, all crowding around, trying to get their piece of this multi-billion dollar fortune. So this is, is much more of a family drama uh, and a battle for succession than than the uh, Disney War story was. All right. Well, it's a fascinating book. Congratulations to you both. The reporting in it is incredible, really. As someone who covered this uh, as it was happening, there were so many questions I had that were answered by this book. And I think that if you care about business and you care about interesting family sagas, uh, you'll be into this book. So thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, did you see Tom Cruise showed up to the Oscar nominee lunch yesterday? I did, and I'm definitely walking back my prediction that he's not going to be at the Oscars. He's definitely going to be at the Oscars. Oh, yeah, he'll he'll definitely be there. He, so he showed up. He's not nominated as an actor. He's nominated as a producer of Top Gun. And it's interesting to see the pivot here that the Top Gun Oscar campaign is taking. Uh, my prediction today, by the way, is that they are going for it that Paramount has decided that they have a chance. I mean, you sort of have to decide whether you're actually going to do a phase two campaign after the nominations come out. And there are movies like Avatar and Women Talking that are just not even going for it. They're happy for the nomination and they don't think they can win. Top Gun, they are buying ads. There is a billboard uh, that I just saw on Sunset Boulevard and one on Sattel in L.A. Uh, Cruz is now in L.A., we know. He showed up at the Oscar nominees lunch and he was at CAA and he's going to do this Producers Guild honor that he's got. So he's going to be out campaigning. And it's interesting to see the turn in the campaign. The billboard, and I think they've run some local ads in LA and they're doing trade ads and stuff, says Top Gun Maverick restores your faith in the magic of movies. So they're basically saying vote for Top Gun if you care about the movie business, which I think is smart. Well, yeah, because all these other movies are more or less prestige films and Top Gun, they can just lean the other way and the message can be, Top Gun, everybody in the world liked it. It saved movies. It's the reason why people are back in theaters now. Do you think this means that Cruz is going to be on like Fallon and Stephen Colbert now? Like, How, how far is this going to go with Cruz? Yeah, I mean, obviously with him, you have to protect him or his people believe that they have to protect him and always have him in a sheltered environment. He's not going to do some big sit down with a real journalistic outlet. He's not going to do like Dak Shepard's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. He's he's not going to do any any uh, introspection here or a- anyone who's going to ask tough questions. But this happens in Oscar campaigns. You you have to pick a narrative 
in phase two that you think will resonate with voters. You know, the, the famous one, Harvey Weinstein invented this, where he would do these outrageous things. Like for the artist, the year the artist won, he did a, his whole narrative was, this was celebrating the art of movie making. And he appealed to people's creative instincts. And said, so, you know, he hosted a screening by two of Charlie Chaplin's granddaughters to promote the artist because it was like a connection to old Hollywood. And, you know, the famous one is the year of 12 years a slave. The tagline in phase two for that movie was it's time, which feels cringy in retrospect. It was basically saying to the predominantly white Academy vote for this movie about a slave to atone for the history of slavery. It was, you would never see that today, but it worked. It won. And I think the the narrative here for Top Gun in a year in which movies are so challenged and everything is flopping, this was a huge hit and it brought people back to movies. And that's going to be the narrative. And we'll see if it wins. I think it will resonate. I think it will actually resonate with these voters. It does have a shot. I mean, if you look at the betting odds, Top Gun is the third best odds to win Best Picture out of the 10 movies nominated. Yeah, I still don't think it will win. I think right now, Everything Everywhere is probably the front runner. But a lot of the older Academy voters don't really get that movie. So we'll see if Top Gun can do it. All right. That is the show for today. I want to thank my guests, James Stewart and Rachel Abrams. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck. And I want to thank you. We'll see you later this week. 